Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person very pleased with our guest today, Mark Ritchie. Currently, Mark is the president of Global Minnesota. Mark served as Minnesota's Secretary of State from 2007 to 2015. From 1986 until 2006, Ritchie served as president of the Minneapolis-based Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, a nonprofit organization working with businesses, churches, farm organizations, and civic groups to foster long-term sustainability for Minnesota's rural communities. Um, So welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Mark. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for covering all those great, important food and farming issues. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. And um, tomorrow, we're taping this on Thursday, but on, uh, on Friday, October 16th, is World Food Day. So what is World Food Day? So World Food Day happens every year on October 16th, which is the day in 1945 when the United Nations, which had just been formed itself, Uh, declared the creation of the Food and Agricultural Organization, the FAO, as it's often called. And so this is the 75th anniversary of the creation of the FAO. And so it's always celebrated, usually in every country around the world. But this is a special opportunity because it is their 75th anniversary. Okay. And so you are um, coordinating an amazing uh, virtual event um, on Friday, October 16th. Um, David Beasley with the World Food Program, he recently um, was part of the the group that earned the Nobel Peace Prize, as well as Columbia University, um, um, Jeffrey Sachs, who is considered one of the world's leading economists. So you're bringing a lot of the leading thinkers together to talk about food. That's right. Minnesota has a long tradition of very interesting and often very substantive World Food Day observances. Um, in, the, in the early years, in 1986, 87, 89, the national office for the FAO uh, would broadcast through satellite a national telecast with those sort of national and international figures. Um, uh, one year I was one of those uh, experts on the panel. And then at the local level, they would be shown, let's say, at the student center on campus or in a university classroom. And then there would be an afternoon of local uh, experts and organizations. But that pattern, of course, was built around the notion of gathering. Uh, The last one that I have a brochure from, the gathering included an evening dinner together, a bouillon dinner. And um, our uh, former congressman and former secretary of state, uh, Arlen Erdahl, was the keynote speaker. That time he was the head of all things related to recruitment at the Peace Corps. So that gathering couldn't happen, although that was our original intention when we began planning for World Food Day 2020. But with the pandemic, the new virtual world, it became possible to take that older idea of the national teleconference, the sort of satellite broadcast, and to invite those international leaders, uh, the head of the International Labor Organization. Uh, We've got a greeting and message from the head of the Food and Agriculture Organization. You mentioned um, the executive director of the World Food Program, and we also have the head of the actual operations of the World Food Program and 
of the World Health Organization. They work together on COVID response and famine response. Uh, they'll open up the afternoon of the program. So having a history of recognizing, observing, and using it as a day to really reconsider all things related to food and health and famine and nutrition gave us a kind of framework for organizing and then promoting um, a major, what's now become a really an international teleconference or webinar for World Food Day 2020. And all of these presentations are going to be available online. Correct. Online, and of course, then they will be recorded, and they'll be on the YouTube channel of Global Minnesota. And I'm betting they'll also be on many other YouTube channels and then used in college courses, high school courses, because they'll cover everything from regenerative agriculture to um, what's the impact of uh, having a school so disrupted for our um, younger students and the way that school lunches and school breakfasts have become part of a really uh, maintaining a nutritious diet for many, many, many children and students around the world. So I have a lot of different things, and it'll be online. And we're going to be going deeper into this, um, into what's going on in the conference. But let's just talk about the context of food and the challenges currently in the food system. You know, climate change, extreme weather patterns, um, unsustainable extractive food practices, which deplete the soils, and now COVID-19. I mean, here in Minnesota, you know, pigs had to be slaughtered. I mean, there's so much going on right now at the food system. Does anyone really understand what's going on? Well, I think one of the things that we look at at the kind of level of global Minnesota is what are the the benchmarks that people have put out there that have to do with food and the interrelationship, or let's call it the nexus, with health, with protection of water, with climate, with biodiversity, and the cultural aspects. And so one of those markers is, of course, the Global Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, as they're sometimes referred to. Um, there's 17 of those, a uh, lot of activity on them. But number two is the stated goal of zero hunger by 2030. And so in that context, the world has been making remarkable progress in that direction towards zero hunger. And these are global goals. So uh, to the extent that we're really aware of now and dealing with a level of hunger in our own country and in our own state and in our own neighborhoods, similar to the Great Depression, that whole direction towards meeting that 2030 goal has been very severely reversed in this period of the COVID-created economic disruption. People lost their jobs, but also people lost their livelihoods, whether it was shopping uh, in a mall or serving in, a, in a, some kind of a marketplace around the world. And of course, the COVID pandemic has also dramatically affected many people working uh, farm workers in particular, people working in meatpacking plants, the frontline workers in our grocery stores. So we were moving in a very positive direction worldwide. We've been dealt a pretty serious blow. We're moving in the wrong direction. And I think that part of the momentum that we hope to be generating out of our observance tomorrow on October 16th, 
is the sort of recommitment to pick ourselves up and move forward again. And I think this is one of the elements that World Food Day has served, I think, throughout its history. I think there have been 40-some years of World Food Day observances, um, is a chance to catch up with, you know, what are people doing? What are some of the new ideas? But equally important, that sort of re-inspiration or reigniting that momentum. And I'm sure hopeful that we'll, um, you know, have that as one of our outcomes tomorrow. The numbers, um, the numbers, food insecurity is rising from 135 million to as many as 270 million. Roughly 690 million people across the earth remain hungry today. I mean, um, that's just hard to hear. And but the, uh, the one of the other things that that you um, are doing is you have an exhibit at the Mall of America about when Minnesota fed the children of Europe. You want to talk a yep. little bit about that? Yes. Um, about a year and a half ago, I was talking to somebody in Washington D.C. and I ended up learning about a, a an exhibit, not this one, but another one uh, about the U.S. occupation of Germany in the period just following the First World War. And it was a beautifully created exhibit uh, by a group of scholars and historians in Germany. And um, when I read carefully the different elements, I saw that there were some major uh, famine relief operations, uh, campaigns created by uh, soldiers and including the general who was in charge of that occupation. When he came home, uh, he raised millions of dollars and uh, use that money to help send food over to the infants, babies, children, and mothers in that region. So it piqued my interest. Well, you know, how did that happen? What was what was that all about? And I was talking about this with a person from the Belgium consulate. So he worked for the government of Brussels and the the, the part of the country called Wallonia. And he said, well, you know, we have an exhibit about um, the feeding of the children and people of Belgium by the Americans, uh, would you like to see a copy of it? And so he showed me an exhibit that had been created that was a very special exhibit because it was letters from the children of Belgium to the children of America, thanking them for saving their lives. Beautifully written, uh, beautiful paintings, and I mean, it was just kind of stunning. And I said, well, what's the story? And so he told me the story, which was that um, when uh, Belgium was invaded, when uh, German army occupied Belgium and northern France, uh, they began disrupting all forms of agriculture, and the British blockaded all of the ports so no food could get in. And so about 100,000 Americans who were in that region fled got to London, they needed some assistance. Many did not have the money to get home. And a young American engineer who was a mining engineer and was an assistant and a consultant to mining operations all over the world, uh, he uh, uh, helped them, those 100,000, get home. And his skill at that was such that the ambassador from Belgium and the ambassador from the United States went to him and said, would you take on the task of raising what turned out to be millions of dollars, finding and getting the food and getting it delivered to Belgium and convincing the British to let it come across their blockade and then convince the German army to let it be distributed? 
And can you do that in the next month? Because people <laughs> are going to starve to death. And that young man was Herbert Hoover, a future president. He said yes. He put his foot on the gas and began that process as a private citizen. He created a private commission for the relief in Belgium. And he recruited a Minnesotan, James Ford Bell, who also was a Quaker, as was Herbert Hoover. They were really driven and led in their lives around values. And James Ford Bell at that time was the president of the Washburn Crosby Company, which was one of the world's largest um, wheat flour making companies. He had had the world's largest flour grinding mill, what they called the A Mill. We now call it Mill City Museum. And he was very highly respected and regarded in the whole industry. And so Hoover looked to him and asked him to come be part of his work as the liaison to the U.S. Um, milling industry. He said yes. And between them, they then, so this is 2014. Between you mean 2014, 1914. 1914. 1914. 1914. Sorry. Thank you. But between 1914 and the year 1923, uh, Hoover stayed running these uh, various relief operations and there were about 10 million people saved in Belgium. Ultimately, it was 45 countries. Ultimately, it was over 100, some say 170 million people. And the last effort that Hoover led, which is a very, very big one, which was um, addressing what has been called humanity's worst uh, famine, which was in Russia. Well, wow. uh, Mark, Herbert there's so much Hoover. we're going we're to need to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk right. more about World Food Day and more about this exhibit at the Mall of America when Minnesota fed the children of Europe. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us by phone is the president of Global Minnesota, Mark Ritchie. Um, October 16th is World Food Day, um, and uh, when we went on break, you were talking about when Minnesota fed the children of Europe. Um, there's an exhibit at the Mall of America this month, and I must admit, I didn't really know this, but we had the, the this was the this hunger relief effort grew to become one of the largest humanitarian efforts in history, feeding more than 150 million Europeans, um, and this was after World War One. Right, right. And what was great about that uh, for me was. I didn't know this story, and I, I mean, trained to be a high school history teacher. You know, my uh, interest and passion have been a lot around history. But learning about that organized charity or that organized kindness that Herbert Hoover led and James Ford Bell, who, you know, we know of with the Bell Museum and with the Bell Library, but very few people ever knew this story, um, was responded to with a kind of organized gratitude that included letters from children because they knew that part of Hoover's work was urging Americans to eat less, urging children to not leave food on their plate or not to take more than they needed so that the children of Europe could eat. And the King of Belgium, you know, provided uh, this beautiful book of gratitude but he also gave a, an honor of the, the royal family of Belgium 
to Hoover and to James Ford Bell. And so um, these kinds of connections, the Belgian people don't forget. They honor this every year. And as part of our ceremony, so people can go see this exhibit of these beautiful letters. They're translated. They're on big, big banners on the wall. It's on the third floor of the Mall of America in the North Atrium. So it's big and airy, very safe, um, kind of by the, the food court. And it's about 16 huge placards that have the letters, the translations, and it tells the story. Um, and uh, there's also additional information about this on the website of Global Minnesota. But the speakers for that opening were spectacular. And people can see that um, uh, program on the YouTube channel of Global Minnesota, and I highly recommend it. Well, Mark, I love that phrase, organized kindness. And so let's let's talk about all the organized kindness that's going to be going on this World World Food Day. Um, it opens with um, a, a, a president, oh, you open it, but th- then the opening is working together for a world without hunger. So tell us about that presentation. Yes, so the, um, uh, the experience of the First World War uh, really stayed in the minds of our national leaders, but one in particular spoke incredibly passionately about seeing children desperate and knowing that desperate children, which he saw all over Europe, would be desperate people and that they could not be good. He called them, they said they couldn't be apostles for peace. And in their belief that we had to do something about hunger and the link between hunger and fascism and hunger and and war, conflict, um, General Eisenhower uh, proposed... uh, to the United Nations, so this was when he was president, um, that they take the idea of food for peace and make it into an international, multinational agency that would be the 911, the first responder when there was a hurricane, tornado, a crisis, a civil war that displaced people. And he made this as an impassioned plea at the General Assembly in 1960. That idea was warmly received. It was picked up then by President JFK, President Kennedy. Um, Food for Peace was the word that people used. And finally, uh, South Dakota Senator George McGovern, another Midwesterner like Hoover, you know, like Eisenhower, like Truman, he proposed and it was accepted to create the World Food Program. And so fast forward. The World Food Program grew to be the largest humanitarian agency on the planet. Its responsibilities right at the moment are feeding around 100 million people each year. These are people displaced by civil wars or by uh, sudden changes of uh, hurricane, that kind of thing. Um, In Beirut, Lebanon, there was a gigantic explosion that literally destroyed 85% of their food in one explosion. And so... Your first place you call is World Food Program. They partnered uh, this last year with the World Health Organization to be the transport, I would say, logistics center for the protection gear, for the ventilators, for the various things that were needed, in addition to being the source of food and moving food aid. And their work, and the Nobel Committee put this in very strong language, their work both addressed a human need of food, It also, they were very militant in 
opposing the idea that food could be weaponized in civil conflicts, conflicts of war. And they also created the conditions for peace because they emphasized people uh, restoring their ability to produce their own food and to be food self-sufficient. So um, many months ago, we invited the head of the World Food Program to kick off our day, not having any idea that he would be asked to... um, do many different things this day because he would have been named as the organization, named as the Nobel laureate. Uh, But in any case, we also uh, asked uh, many months ago his director of operations to be our kickoff in the afternoon. So we'll have World Food Program uh, 101, the kind of big picture, where did it come from, what's it doing, how does it function? And then in the afternoon, we'll also have a panel where we'll look at the partnership between World Food Program and World Health Organization in terms of being the the kind of largest humanitarian operation on the planet. Wow, I love this connection between organized kindness and peace. I mean, I just it's it's a really a uh inspirational um, concept. So at 10 o'clock, that's that's how you open. Um, At 10 o'clock, it's Minnesota leading the way for the future of food with the MBOLD Coalition. So tell us about that. Yeah, so MBOLD is the name given to a new initiative at uh, Greater MSP, which is our regional uh, sort of economic development, economic marketing uh, organization, kind of like an economic development uh, marketing firm. And MBOLD is an association, a coalition of the university, of the companies involved in food, of the companies involved in agriculture, about seeing a future of sustainability as the North Star, so to speak, in the process of seeing how we meet the needs of people planet-wide for food and nutritious food that's affordable. And so Minnesota has a reputation for being a place where new thinking uh, arises uh, in the medical field, um, you know, in, in technology, in uh, new uh, ways of approaching um, how we organize ourselves, like cooperatives and ESOPs, employee stock ownership. There are lots of innovative ways of doing things that Minnesotans kind of specialize in, and our food companies, our agricultural companies, our university and other research centers have a new coalition to help lift this into um, a new and, and, and higher ground. And, and one of the things that's thrilling for me is that the president of General Mills is leading this off. And General Mills is actually the company that was the lead on feeding the people of Belgium a century ago. Oh, what a wonderful, I love how you're connecting history. And um, so we're going to be talking more about World Food Day uh, program and all this information is online if people want to hear this. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio and we'll be right back. Oh, 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nurse the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us now is Mark Ritchie. Mark is currently the president of Global Minnesota. He also served as Minnesota Secretary of State from 2007 to 2015. And from 1986 until 2006, he was the president of the Agriculture and Trade Policy. So we're talking about World Food Day, which is Friday, October 16th, um, and there will be a conference. This show will air on Saturday, so this show airs after the conference, but all of these recordings are online. Um, at 10 o'clock, uh, the presentation um, will be Minnesota leading the way for the, for the future of food. Um, and again, tell us a little bit about that conference, that that yeah. segment. Yeah, so this will be a, a launch of a new coalition of um, the university and our food companies, agriculture companies, others interested in seeing how the sustainability as the lens or the North Star um, is the way that we need to be approaching the notion of how food fits together in a larger economy and then in our larger maintaining of our health in particular, uh, but also how we protect our natural resources. And what's great about that is that it's, uh, you know, kind of reinforcing uh, one of the, I would say, features of our region in particular is the way that we approach problems or issues. You know, we're we're really the global center for cooperatives because we think that's a good way to handle some problem. The idea of employee stock ownership really came uh, out of our state and out of our region. But we also approach healthcare differently. Uh, the Mayo Way is something that's known globally. And so this um, this will give us an opportunity to talk about uh, some of the new directions. But it also will lead us right into the um, the, the very the, the hour that follows it, which is they have the international director. It's called the director general of the International Labor Organization, which actually is the organization that was uh, born out of the First World War to look at the ways that we have to address social justice. If we're going to reduce conflict, we need to be looking at the conditions of work and employment. Uh, it's an organization that uh, looks at the questions related to farmers, to small landholders, to farm workers, to people who work in the food industry, people who work in the food stores. And so this last half year, almost more than that now, the, the COVID pandemic has really brought a spotlight to all of the different people who are involved in bringing food from farm to fork, as we sometimes say, and um, sometimes the dangerous working conditions, sometimes the very um, thin thread that keeps people from being suddenly displaced and unemployed and not able to have an income to feed their families. So we'll go right into um, looking at this from the more global international perspective. Uh, we'll have uh, the international director um, who works closely with the ILO, uh, plus the director general. We'll have the uh, organizations that really do think about that part of the food system. And that'll take us to our lunch where Dr. Jeffrey Sachs will be looking at the sustainable development goals broadly. Why do we try and bring all of these pieces together if we want to really meet that zero hunger goal by 2030? We're going to need everything we can get. We need education and gender equity and all these other issues. So it's going to be an exciting morning uh, and lunchtime for sure before we, we get into that afternoon. It does. Now, how can people after the event um, hear these speakers? Well, so they'll all be recorded, um, and as quick as we can, they will be posted on the YouTube channel of Global Minnesota. They'll also be available for 
teachers and professors and rotary clubs and book clubs and that sort of thing. And just for um, general public purposes, they'll be available. And there are also um, other related. We've been doing a series of events in the month running up to World Food Day. One of them, the opening of the exhibit of when Minnesotans fed the people of of Europe and particularly the children. Uh, we did an earlier uh, panel discussion with some of the leading people on the intersection of food policy and farm policy. So all of that's there on that Global Minnesota YouTube channel. And the uh, new presentations from World Food Day uh, will be up probably in about a week. Right. And so at, at noon, uh, working together to achieve a zero hunger, Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, uh, the New York Times called Sachs probably the most important economist in the wor- world. Um, and among his books is, is The End of Poverty, which he wrote in 2005. So this feels very different than the world we're experiencing somehow right now. I mean, this is hopeful, um, but, um, uh, you know, but, but uh, you know, how do we create that world which doesn't have – is it even possible to have a world without hunger? Well, uh, you'll always have hunger because you are going to always have weather, right? Uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, floods, etc. So how do you respond to hunger? That's the question. Wars and conflicts. I don't like saying forever we're going to have wars and conflict, but – Let's say for the time being, there will be wars and conflict. People will flee. They'll flee their farms. They'll flee their communities to try to be safe. They will be in a place, a refugee camp, or just in hiding. They will be hungry. And so we need to be very mindful about being able to bring nutritious food and uh, supplies that are needed, fresh water, medical supplies, etc., when people face a disaster. Beirut, Lebanon, one explosion, a very big explosion, literally destroyed 85% of the food of the country. And so it's an immediate problem that has to be responded to, but we need to do it well. We need to be well prepared. Uh, We need to have thought through how we will respond to a disaster, not wait until after a disaster happens. We live in Minnesota. We have blizzards. We have floods. We have tornadoes. And sometimes a tornado like the one that leveled uh, Rochester back in the 1880s, 1800s, um, resulted in the idea which became Mayo Clinic. So Mm -hmm. sometimes when we haven't prepared and we get really smashed and we get it together and we Mm -hmm. do what the nuns said, and let's build a hospital, uh, uh, Sanford Health, we know of that they actually uh, grew out of a, a discussion at the Chicago World Fair, 1893, and they called the original institution an institution of organized kindness. That's the name of the book about the founding of what we call today Sanford Health. So this uh, notion that there will never be a hungry person, that's not possible, but we can meet the needs of hungry people effectively and with climate making things, you know, climate disruption making things even more unpredictable, we have to be smarter, more prepared, more advanced in our thinking and planning, but we can do this. We can do this. 
Awesome. And then, I mean, at one o'clock, um, food safety, security in the midst of COVID-19 and the climate crisis. It seems like doing that, going towards zero hunger, is actually harder with all of the um, crises yes, yes. coming. And um, and uh, because this one happens to be with a panelist from Europe, and so it has uh, what's taped because of the time zone, um, I know that one of the most important things said was we had the two senior people on the planet, the senior person at the World Health Organization responsible for moving all of the COVID-related protective gear, ventilators, all of that globally, and his big partner in that, the head of all operations for the World Food Program, who then is figuring out how to feed 100 million people all the time. The two of them began working together in response to the Ebola crisis in Central and West, uh, in this case, in West Africa. And they began to see that they had very similar, um, I would say, purposes and visions, because when a, when a pandemic hits or an epidemic hits, it disrupts food production. People flee. They want to get away from Ebola. They want to get away from uh, whatever it is. And so they began to build the working partnerships, and that'll be that's what's talked about in this panel. So a crisis like a climate disruption or a COVID pandemic is a terrible, and we can see it's, it's really, really affected how many people are hungry or very hungry. But it also can be the impetus for cooperation, for partnership, for working together, and that can then strengthen us to handle the explosion in Beirut or a tsunami of the size that hit Indonesia and all of Southeast Asia a few years back. And so that panel is about uh, the difficulties of this past period, but also about the very positive outcome of bringing the two premier international, uh, what we call specialized agencies of the UN, together into one. They call it now Common Services. They run the world's largest airline moving around humanitarian workers and diplomats and U.N. people throughout the whole planet, moving food and medical supplies throughout the entire planet, most of it coming out of warehouses that they own and operate. And they are the medevac service for humanitarian workers who become infected with COVID or some other uh, medical emergency. They are that kind of 911 for the planet. And that is a kind of inspiring, uh, I would say, leap into the future that all of us can celebrate, even in this very terrible time of COVID and, and really climate disruptions like we're seeing with these fires and other uh, things right. that are incomprehensible in, at one level. But we can also see human beings at their finest. Right. And um, and so, I mean, at two o'clock, um, you have the regenerative agriculture, equity, resilience and sustainable development presentation. Yes. yes. You know, there's a lot of interest in not just thinking about sustainability. And that's, I think, a kind of a major overarching theme and set of values. Uh, but the pandemic has risen uh, in a time where resilience, you know, you have these uh let's say, supply chains that get disrupted and uh, all of a sudden things can't go across the border. And so all of a sudden you have a new circumstance uh, and regenerative, meaning that uh, 
when the soil is used, it's able to be regenerated. It'll regenerate on its own or through uh, careful cropping and, and double cropping practices and cover crop. And so the language of this uh, new way of thinking is sometimes thought of as kind of the future of food. But in fact, it's uh, often very old and ancient, ancient concepts. I uh, have a good friend here in Minnesota who's from Ghana, uh, head of the Ghanaian Diaspora Association, kind of the social organization. He was home visiting his family in Ghana when the pandemic hit. So he got stuck in Ghana for a very long time. He normally, um, and from Ghana, he runs the food service at Hennepin County Medical Center, great big hospital downtown Minneapolis. And um, one of the things he told me was that because Ghana very strictly closed its borders and really has done an excellent job of just controlling the pandemic. You know, uh, there's so many countries that have done a really good job. But anyhow, one of the things that happened was that Ghana suddenly wasn't able to just import a lot of tomatoes and vegetables from, you know, Europe or import rice from China. They had to remember and go back and become much more self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency. So, yeah, Mark, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back. We're going to talk more with Mark Ritchie and we're going to talk about World Food Day. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us today is Mark Ritchie. Mark is the president of Global Minnesota. He also served as Minnesota's Secretary of State and was president of the Institute of, on Trade and Agriculture Policy. We're talking about World Food Day um, on October 16th, Friday, October 16th. Um, again, um, so people can, because this will air after the event, but everyone can go online and hear what people said. Those informations could be out there. Yes. So... Uh, this uh, entire program recorded on the Global Minnesota YouTube page, and it'll include all of these special sessions um, that we're talking about now, uh, the final session where we'll be looking forward, looking at with the two mayors, St. Paul and Minneapolis and others. And then uh, there'll be social hours with some very special topics. Uh, one, Thank You Africa, it's a whole uh, campaign to be aware of all the beautiful and wonderful foods and beverages that have come to us from Africa. There'll be uh, social hours looking at nutrition, looking at some of the local organizations like Bountafield, which uh, help move uh, really appropriate size uh, food processing technology. So there'll be just a lot of different things throughout the day and recorded so it can be used. People can watch it on their own or use it in schools or churches or wherever they might want to. One thing I feel looking at all the materials is that there's some sense of rising unity, um, like you said, organized kindness, uh, phrases like coming together, uh, words like working together, coalition, partnership are being used. Is that part of, is that by design? Well, it, um, it's something that I have to say I've been not only noticing, but digging into a little further. For example, um, we had the millennial goals, and those were, those were kind of goals about poverty and, and food, et cetera. Um, but once they were, um, you know, the time was up, people were saying, where are we going now? They said, you know, we need universal goals. We need sustainable goals. And we need to make one of them 
turns out to be number 17 of 17, about partnerships, because partnerships is the only way to get to zero hunger or good health. And I looked at it deeply because we are working to bring a World Expo to Minnesota in 2027, specifically focused on health. And we're using that sustainable development goal idea of a simple thing, good health and well-being for all at all ages. And we use that as a unifying message because we know that people can then understand and say, oh, you're working towards the same thing as me. You're probably working in it on a different level, on a different idea. But people say, oh, we're moving in the same direction. Let's go there together. It's a bit like, um, you know, a walk on the Camino or some other journey that people are on. They occasionally can walk with others and get reinforced and get re-inspired. Sometimes you're walking on your own because you're reflecting. But in general, I believe that the challenges we face, like they faced 100 years ago in Europe and people responded from this far away, it's because there's an underlying internal belief, an internal feeling that um, we are all connected. And if somebody is suffering or facing a challenge, there's something we can do. We should do it now. Not well, everybody. And we're, and we're down like to our that. last. We're done our last minute. But I, I just want to. I, I there was a farmer on uh, on Food Freedom Radio, Kathy Connell, and she said, "My sweetest dream. You want to know what my sweetest dream is? Is that small farmers can make a living on 20 acres. That's my sweetest dream. And I know you. One of the presenters uh, works with 50,000 members of small farms in Mexico. So this is about. It's not just about the big or the small. Or it, it's not an either or. It's an us end. Right." Oh, it's an it's an it's a yes and in all ways. And I believe that Minnesota has a responsibility to bring that message out into the world. This year we are forced to be virtual, so we are able to be global. I'm excited that Minnesota's vision will be blended with these other people from other parts of the planet, whether it's Mexico or Belgium or wherever. But I'm really looking forward to a year from now. World Food Day 2021, when we look back and say, these are some things that came out of gathering together and listening and learning from each other in 2020. And that's the kind of uh, forward motion, forward progress that I'm really interested in seeing come out of. Forward motion and uh, organized kindness. Mark Ritchie, thank you so much for being here on Food Free and Radio. Uh, Mark Ritchie, president of Global Minnesota, and you can listen to all these great presentations by going to Global Minnesota. You've been listening to AM 950's Food Freedom Radio.